things that we did in the first service this morning, uh, in addition to having Laura's baptism, was that we honored Mike Muirhead. And Mike and Michelle are preparing to move to Red Deer. He's been working either in Edmonton or Red Deer for last few years, and they've decided that they're going to make a move to Red Deer. We're going to miss them greatly. But Mike has been doing the garage sale for the young people and their mission trip like to Estonia. Mike's been doing that for, he said, 17 or 18 years. Couldn't remember which in terms of getting that all prepared. And they had another one yesterday. It all went very well. And so we honored Mike. And so if you see Mike and, and Michelle, certainly when you see Mike, thank him for all his years of service to our, our young people and their mission and, uh, and to the garage sale. He really has done a fantastic job. Anybody who serves that long in a single role like that, that's just wonderful. Obviously very committed. I wanted to make sure you know also that on June 25th, I keep going over this in my mind, is June 25th a Sunday? I think it is. So if June 25th is a Sunday, because today is the 11th, and 14 and 11 is 25. So June 25th is a Sunday, then on that day, we will, we're going to go to one service, and it will be at 10 minutes after 10. So the normal Bible class hour, which is at 10 after 10, that's going to become the time for our one service on Sunday mornings for the duration of the summer. So that starts on June 25th. Next week, we will have Showcase Sunday in between our two services. So there are still two services next week with Showcase Sunday, but then the following week on June 25th, 1010. And I look forward to being with you all. It'll be nice to have everybody together worshiping and praising as a common voice. Right now, I would love it if you would turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 1, It's on page 823 in your pew Bibles, page 823 in the pew Bibles, Galatians chapter 1. I'm going to start reading with verse 15. We have for the last few, well, no, actually just last week, I guess it was, with Jonathan starting it, we started a a series on broken bonds, relationships within the New Testament that were challenged. And today we're going to talk specifically about Paul and the way in which he was challenged in his relationships with Peter and with Barnabas, but especially Peter. And I think we're going to find some things here that are, that are wonderful to, to learn. But in order for us to get that, we've got to see some of the backdrop. So Galatians chapter 1, verse 15, and I'm going to read quite a bit here. So I hope you have your Bibles and follow along, and you'll get this story of what's going on. Verse 15. But when God, who set me apart from birth and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not consult any man, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went immediately into Arabia and later returned to Damascus. And clearly Paul is making sure here that they understand that he didn't get his gospel from somebody else. He certainly doesn't want them to think that he got it from Peter or James or anybody like that. He just wants them to know, God gave me my gospel. Verse 18, but then three years after I, uh, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Peter and stayed with him 15 days, I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. I assure you before God that what I am writing you is, lie, uh, is no lie, 
Later, I went to Syria and Cilicia. I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only heard the report, the man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, and they praised God because of me. So Paul has made a huge change in his life, and again, he wants them to know about this change and for them to understand that he has made this decision in response to what God is doing in his life. Uh, Chapter 2, verse 1, 14 years later, so quite a gap here. I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus also along, and I went in response to a revelation and set before them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. And there had arisen quite a problem with the gospel. Paul was preaching things that people had questions about, and so there's quite a challenge to this. Uh, But I did this privately to those who seemed to be leaders for fear that I was running or had run my race in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. And that was part of the issue. These Jews from Jerusalem are really wanting the Gentile Christians to follow the ways of the Jews in in the course of being Christians. So they're saying to him, if you're going to be a Christian, you're also going to have to be a Jew, and you're going to have to to do the kinds of things that Jews do in order to also be a Christian. Uh, This matter arose because some false brothers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might remain with you. As for those who seem to be important, whatever they are makes no difference to me. God does not judge by external appearance. Those men added nothing to my message. So again, he's wanting to make sure that that they're clear that he got his message from God and not from somebody else. On the contrary, they saw that I'd been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, just as Peter had been to the Jews. For God, who was at work in the ministry of Peter as an apostle to the Jews, was also at work in my ministry as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Peter, John, those reputed to be pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the Jews, All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Now, I'm going to move on to verse 11 in a little bit here, but I I want us to see, first of all, that there's some things that come out of these verses that are fairly important for us to get if we're going to get what's going on in this story. So understand, Paul is in Antioch, as he communicates in the book of Galatians, and he has received his gospel. It's not not from others, it's strictly from God. And he then has this relationship kind of parallel to Peter. So here are some things. First, Paul is adamant that he received his gospel directly from Jesus Christ and not from somebody else. That secures the position of his gospel. Second, Paul has staked everything on the liberating freedom of the gospel he preaches. In fact, he left his whole former way of life. When Paul leaves behind his life in Judaism, he doesn't just say, well, I think I'm going to try something new. He gets rid of what it was that he was before in terms of this whole Jewish background. Not that he's not a Jew any longer, but he he leaves behind the faith system that he had previously lived out. And this becomes a huge issue because Paul is giving up everything. He's making a, a monstrous sacrifice here, and it puts him at great risk when he puts himself out there like that, choosing just to obey the gospel. Then thirdly, the church leaders had given Paul their full support And and as he describes here, on more than one occasion. And so Barnabas stands behind him. Barnabas is a guy who's trusted by the apostles. In chapter 4, verse 14 of the book of Acts, he's actually said to be an apostle. And then he's the one who brings Paul to Jerusalem and he introduces Paul to the rest of the apostles. 
uh, like Barnabas has a great relationship with them and he is trusted uh, and, and it has accepted Paul. In fact, in Galatians chapter 1, verse 18, Paul says that he even stayed with Peter. Like if you look at verse 18 there, it says, I spent 15 days basically in Peter's house. That's interesting because later on there's going to be a relationship problem here and Paul is saying, I, I, I'm having a relationship problem with someone who's in whose house I stayed, with whom I have relationship. And then as he makes the second trip to Jerusalem after he'd proved himself over a period of 14 years, he was officially accepted by the apostles. They give him, the text says, a right hand of fellowship, which is a pledge. Basically, what happens is that the apostles are pledging to Paul. They're giving him the right hand of fellowship and saying, we pledge to support you. We pledge to be brotherhood with you by giving you the right hand of fellowship. So there's close relationship between Paul and the rest of these apostles. They are endorsing, in fact, his gospel message by giving him the right hand of fellowship. So it's not only Barnabas who has a long-standing relationship with Paul, but now over a period of years, as it says in chapter 2, verse 10, I think it is, there's 14 years there where Paul has developed a relationship with James, the brother of the Lord. He has a relationship with, uh, with Peter, who is this chief in many ways of the apostles, the leaders in Jerusalem have accepted him and Paul has close relationship with them. It all looks good. Like it looks like Paul has good relationship with these other brothers in, relation, uh, in Jerusalem and they've accepted the gospel and Paul's claim that you don't have to be a Jew in order to be a Christian. It looks like all of that is good and then you get to verse 11. Look at Galatians chapter 2 verse 11. When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. Before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. So before these guys came up from Jerusalem to check out what was going on, Paul says, Peter used to eat with the Gentiles. We'd all sit down one big happy family and have table fellowship, which was a huge deal. You'll remember the sheet coming down out of heaven, and, and God saying to Peter, it's okay for you to have table fellowship with the Gentiles. All foods are clean here. But now Peter is pulling back. Before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles, but when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. He's a fear. He's afraid. There's fear there. The other Jews joined him in this hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray, which is what Jonathan mentioned last week. So you've got Peter and Barnabas who have close fellowship, the right hand of fellowship extended to Paul, and they are now backtracking on their commitment to his gospel, pulling away, neither one of them supporting Paul any longer. Verse 14, when they saw that they were not, when he, when I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, which is what Peter had been doing up until the time these guys came. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? Now that these other guys from Jerusalem have come up here, you're changing your tune. What's going on, Peter? How can you possibly be doing this? And that is an interesting question. This is a grave, grave 
matter. And in fact, I think it's, this is one of those points in Christian history where you just wonder whether or not the gospel is going to make it. If there was ever a time, a point at which the gospel was going to be challenged and potentially not going to even be continuing to be proclaimed, if the church isn't going to make it, this is one of those points where you have Paul on the one hand, the apostle to the Gentiles, Peter on the other hand, the apostle to the Jews, and all of a sudden there is a major conflict. Now, I I can't really think of any other word to describe what's going on here other than a word like betrayal. Because up up until now, Peter has been a supporter of Paul. Barnabas has been supporting Paul and his gospel. And yes, they recognized there was a huge challenge there. Things had changed drastically between the the gospel that Paul preaches and and saying to the Jews, you no longer have to be Jews, and, and what the Jews had always lived with as God's chosen people. There's a big change here. There's a challenge for sure. And it's not going well as Peter and Barnabas essentially betray what they have said they're going to do for Paul. And no one had been more vulnerable than Paul. No one had given up as much for the gospel as Paul. No one was more at risk than Paul. Paul knew that along with the other apostles, he had received a clear call from God. And the other apostles knew it too. And they'd acted on it by more than once endorsing Paul's message and mission. And now, because of peer pressure, because of fear, Doubts, Peter and Barnabas are in some sense becoming turncoats, treating Paul's message with contempt, refusing to honor it in the city of Antioch. And so there's a sense in which they're not just betraying Paul. Think about this. Peter the apostle, Barnabas, who is recognized also as an apostle, is betraying Christ again. It's nothing short of that. Peter is saying that the grace that Jesus has given us on the cross is no longer good enough. The Gentiles have to also become Jews before they can be saved. And thereby, I think, he is, in a sense, betraying Christ all over again. And certainly saying that Paul's gospel is not good enough. Well, I cannot imagine a lonelier place for Paul to have to stand. And here's Paul being betrayed essentially by everyone that is close to him of any kind of position of authority in the church. They're turning their backs on him. And he has to stand there all by himself. Of course, fortunately, he's not by himself. He's got God with him, of course. Christ is with him. The Holy Spirit is with him. But he's having to say to Peter, of all people, you're in the wrong. You know, it's like today in the Catholic Church. Can you imagine someone just walking up to the Pope and saying, you know what? You're totally blowing it. What a mistake you've made. Like, you don't know what you're doing. It's about like what Paul is doing, except he's doing it to the real Pope. He's doing it to one who is actually the apostle of God. And saying, you have blown it here. You're making mistakes. What a lonely, 
uncomfortable, risky place to be. And how disheartening and discouraging this has to be for Paul as he tries to stand for the truth all on his own in the face even of Peter and Barnabas turning their backs on him. Well, again, I, you know, I think this is an important point in Christian history. And Paul could have given in here. He could have said, well, okay, Paul, Peter, I guess you, know, you, you must know best. You were with Jesus, but he doesn't know best. Now, what's interesting to me is that very quickly here, we're going to see that Peter and Barnabas repent. They change their perspective. They again begin to adopt the gospel that Paul preaches. But what's interesting is that the text never says anything about it. I'd love to know. Like, what is it that went through Peter's mind after Paul has rebuked him? What goes through Barnabas's mind after he has been rebuked by Paul? Some kind of change must take place. We don't know the chronology of the repentance, but it's clear that Peter and Barnabas both repented. Whatever they were feeling, whatever they experienced, they had to work through in their minds in response to Paul's rebuke, together with the Holy Spirit, what they were going to do. And we do know that over a period of time, they actually repented. And so Peter, again, has to make a big repentance and change, taking his foot out of his mouth as he's had to do so many times before. Well, the reason we know that is all from Acts chapter 15. I want you to turn in your Bibles, if you would, to uh, Acts 15. It's on page 783 in your pew Bibles. Page 783. And we're going to read just the last few verses of Acts 14. And I'll show you how this works. It's, it's really quite fascinating. Look at Acts 15, but then the first couple of verses there at the end of 14. Page 783. Now, what's happening is that Paul and Barnabas have been out on the first missionary journey, and they now head back to Antioch, which you might remember is the place where the whole controversy between Paul and Peter takes place. Look at verse 26 of chapter 14. From Italia, they sailed back to Antioch, where they'd been committed to the grace of God for the work they had now completed. On arriving there, they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles, and they stayed there a long time with the disciples. So Paul and Barnabas come back to Antioch, and they are full of good news. This is great stuff. We've been out preaching the gospel. People are coming to Christ. The Gentiles are being one to the Lord. This is all wonderful. And then apparently, somewhere between the end of chapter 14 and the start of chapter 15, Peter arrives. And that's the story that's told in in Galatians chapter 1 and 2. Peter comes up and he starts to eat with the Gentiles for a while. And he enjoys hearing about all the good news and all these Gentiles that have come to Christ. But then when some other guys come up from Jerusalem, he gives in. And Paul has to call him to task on that. Now, again, somewhere in there, I don't know where because it doesn't say, Peter and Barnabas had to have changed their minds. They must have come back to Paul's gospel. And we know that because of what happens in Acts 15. Look at verse 1. Now this, this is going to talk about some men coming up to, to Antioch, but this is not when Peter's there. This is a, a new time. It, it, it initiates a new sequence of events. Some men came down from Judea to Antioch 
and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, by this time, Barnabas and Peter have already repented of their mistake that they made in Galatians chapter 1 and 2. So this is, an, this is a new circumstance. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. And that makes everybody glad. Everybody's happy about the Gentiles coming to Christ. This new news made all the brothers glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church. And I don't think I mentioned that in the first service, but it's interesting that when Paul and Barnabas arrive, the church welcomes them. Peter is a part of that church. And so Peter has welcomed them now, even though they're bringing this message of the gospel to the Gentiles that does not include becoming a Jew. So again, repentance has taken place here, and Peter's now changed his mind. Verse 5, then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. So the controversy continues, and now watch what Peter does. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. That was the... uh, incident with Cornelius. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the disciples a yoke that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that we are saved, just as they are. And this is revolutionary. What's happened is that Peter just said, I believe everything Paul has been teaching. When I went up to Antioch a while ago, oh, I gave in. I got scared. I gave in to peer pressure. Barnabas, he did it too. But clearly here, Peter has changed his mind again. He's now back on Paul's side. And I think it's wonderful that this leader in the church, who is the apostle of apostles within the early church, has the capacity to say, for the sake of the body of Christ and for that which is right, I'm going to change my mind again and I'm going to do what God wants me to do. And so we find Peter willing to say, in so many words, I was wrong. I blew it. And now I'm back on track again. And he makes decisions along with others here in Acts chapter 15 that solidify the gospel of Paul as the gospel for the Gentiles. And aren't you grateful as Gentile people, most all of us, aren't you grateful that Paul did that? I'm so grateful as a Gentile that Paul and Peter were able to work this out. And that Peter himself was able to say, I'm with Paul now. And here's what's exciting to me. It's exciting to me that people who disagree on something having to do with the church, having to do with the Lord, having to do with Jesus, have the capacity within themselves through the presence of the Holy Spirit to work this out. There's genuine unity on a major, major issue within the early church. 
And it's because people have the ability to swallow their pride, to live, live out some of the fruit of the Spirit, and to God, allow God to work in them in such a way that even after Peter betrayed Paul, Paul was able to accept his apology. Even after Peter had totally blown it, he was able to make a decision that put him back on track and where he should be when he was simply wrong. The church has the capacity, when we are willing to be humble, to reconcile our differences. God, through His Spirit, wishes for the unity of the church, and this unity transcends our interests and desires. And that's exactly what I see in Peter. It's exactly what I see in Barnabas. With them saying there is something more at stake here. Bigger than my own wishes. And I, I, what we're doing here this morning I think is some preventive medicine. You know, we're in a good place in our church in terms of our unity. In fact, it's interesting. I spent the last week, uh, I left on Tuesday, and I went down to Nashville, Tennessee for a conference down there. Christian Scholars Conference, and I was assigned the task along with, like some of you know Shelly Jacobs. Uh, she's from Western, and uh, she's now actually, Shelly is, is one of the curators, one of the archivists for the Disciples of Christ Historical Society in, in Bethany, West Virginia, uh, which all has to do with the Churches of Christ and the Restoration Movement and Stone Campbell Movement, all of that. She is working on all kinds of documents that support our movement and, and its history. Well, Shelly was offering a paper on unity between the independent Christian churches and the churches of Christ. And so she asked me if I would say something about the possibilities of the future of the unity of the Restoration Movement churches, the independent Christian churches and the churches of Christ in Western Canada. She said, you know, would you write a paper about this and share it with us? And I did. And it was so wonderful. And, I'll, and the reason was really simply because of this. I had a chance to say to the group that was gathered, that as far as I can tell, the most exciting, positive position of unity between the independent Christian churches and the churches of Christ anywhere in the world is happening in Calgary, Alberta. That's what I told them. And there wasn't any of them that could dispute it. Because it's true. The relationships that we have here in Calgary between the independent Christian churches and the churches of Christ is the, if they're the best relationships that I know anywhere in the world. It's the very best. And the only thing I can say about that is that God, through His Spirit, has done something absolutely wonderful, unique, unprecedented. And I'm just so grateful for it that we have a chance to be part of that. And when I read this text and I read what Paul and Peter were able to do by working out among themselves this relationship and allowing the Holy Spirit to work in them so that unity could prevail, praise the Lord. Like it's just so wonderful to be a part of all of that and to have that kind of unity happening among us the way that it happened among them. Here's an interesting story. One of the things that Shelley shared in her paper, I'd never heard this before. Some of you will know the name J.C. Bailey. Some of you probably knew J.C. Bailey. Shelley, in her story, or in her uh, paper, talked about the stories of, of J.C. Bailey writing in bulletin articles himself about how he would insist 
on calling the independent Christian church members brothers. He called them brothers. Now, I don't know about you, but my, I only had one conversation with J.C. Bailey in my life. It was on the phone. I called him and I, you know, I said, I want to have a conversation with you. I, I'm in Canada now and just wanted to meet you or talk to you on the phone somehow. This is several years before he died. And I, that was the only conversation I ever had with him. Everything else is by reputation. And the reputation that he had is that when it came to these kind of things, he was a little bit stern. Some of you have probably heard him preach. I think he probably had the ability to pound on the pulpit a little bit and speak with a loud voice. But when it came to calling the independent Christian church members brothers, he did. And that's an ironic spirit. It's a spirit of peace. It's a spirit of unity. It's a spirit of cooperation. It's a spirit that lacks judgment. I can't speak for all the things that J.C. Bailey said, but I can tell you that there's at least one re- researcher in our, among our historians who's read his bulletin articles and said he called them brothers. That's beautiful. It's wonderful. In order to call somebody a brother in the church, you have to assume that they're a Christian, part of the body of Christ. And he did. Well, as I said, this is preventive medicine. I think we're a pretty unified group in our body, and I'm grateful that we are. God continues to work among us. And it's important that as time goes on, we continue to have this spirit of unity among us. It was hugely important to Paul and to Peter and to Barnabas that the church remain unified. In fact, Jesus prays for this specifically in John 17. It's on the list of Jesus' theological priorities. There are so many things that if I was to say, is this important, is this important, that Jesus would put them below unity and would say that unity in the body of Christ is at the top. Praise the Lord for that. I'm so grateful that God has worked in that way in the church for a long, long time. So we're a unified body of Christ. We're going to continue to be. We're going to be a bit proactive and preventive in terms of being unified in that way. And I'm just praying that God continues to bless us with the privilege of being a unified body in Him. Praise the Lord that we get to experience that in Calgary the way that we do, to the point where I can say, this is the best situation there is. Because it's true. Let's pray. God, I'm so grateful that you have worked among us the way that you have here in our city to unify our churches. I'm grateful for those over at Bow Valley Christian Church and those at Oak Park and those who are at Ross Carrick and Riverview and just the different churches in town. I pray that you continue to bless them in every way, even as you bless us. Keep us unified and focused in you. I'm grateful for the, for the works we've been able to share together. Uh, you just have blessed us with your spirit of unity. And I pray that it's always the case. Through Jesus we pray. Amen.